Welcome to Indie Film Weekly, a No Film School podcast. I'm Liz Nord. I'm John Fusco. I'm Charles Hain. We are here on September 14th, 2017, and on this week's show, a fall tech preview with news from Apple, IBC, Resolve, and more, plus which films got acquired at TIFF, including Louis C.K.'s top-secret DIY movie. And as always, news you can use about upcoming deadlines, indie film releases, and Ask No Film School. Hi everybody, welcome to this week's show, coming at you from downtown Brooklyn, New York, with our hearts in Toronto at TIFF. We are here this week, as always, to bring you everything you might have missed while you were busy working on film projects. So the reason I mentioned Toronto is because we are a little more than halfway through the Toronto International Film Festival, otherwise known as TIFF, or North America's largest film fest. And there's been a ton of acquisition news already, so we'll kick right off with the bottom line. Now that Emily's not here, we're looking for possibly a new name for this enthralling segment. So if you have any ideas, you know, holla at us. So by the Monday after opening weekend of the festival, otherwise known as this Monday, $50 million had already been spent on acquisitions, split up among many deals rather than a few huge purchases, with none topping $5 million so far. One of the main reasons TIFF is a big acquisitions fest is that it's the last one of the year that still gives distributors enough time to launch titles for this coming Oscar season. The bidding war started even before the festival kicked off. CBS Films apparently put up a blind bid of $6 million on Craig Gillespie's I, Tanya, in which Margot Robbie plays the Olympic figure skater Tanya Harding, but the film's producers shut down the bidding until the premiere, in theory to amp up hype about it. Surprisingly, despite extremely positive reviews, CBS apparently lowered its bid to $2 million after the premiere, and ultimately Neon outbid CBS, buying the film for $5 million. You might remember that Neon just launched this past year, and we went to the company's awesome launch party at South by Southwest, so high-profile buys like this one show that the company's intending to be a serious player in the indie space. Now, I have to mention Louis C.K.'s I Love You, Daddy, because, well, everybody else is. Dude self-financed the film, shot in a secret media blackout on 35mm in black and white, and edited it himself. I mean, talk about DIY. As if this weren't enough to generate buzz, he premiered at TIFF with absolutely zero press previews. And buzz it did. Apparently, the film approaches some extremely taboo subjects. It's about the seduction of CK's character's 17-year-old daughter by an esteemed filmmaker and rumored pedophile who is four times her age. Many reviewers have been particularly squeamish about the topics given Louis CK's own past sexual assault allegations. But he told the New York Times, quote, I made a movie that totally walks all over that electric fence. So he knew what he was getting into. And the buzz tactics paid off as it was sold to the orchard for five million bucks. Interestingly, by the time of this recording, the streamers have been much quieter than at earlier festivals this year, with Amazon being as good as silent, and Netflix has only made two purchases. They got worldwide distribution rights for the Vice documentary Jim and Andy, The Great Beyond, and they bought Mark Rasso's Kodachrome, starring Elizabeth Olsen, Ed Harris, and Jason Sudeikis, for $4 million. The biggest surprise for me so far was an acquisition by YouTube Red, which bought Morgan Spurlock's supersize Me Too, Holy Chicken, which you may guess is a sequel to the movie that put Spurlock on the map. YouTube Red paid $3.5 million for six months of exclusivity on the service and apparently will share 50% of revenue from all of their sales to windows like SVOD. This is a very filmmaker-friendly deal, and it makes YouTube worth considering if your film is for sale right now. 
We've got a bunch of coverage from the festival on nofilmschool.com so far, including talks and masterclasses with Aaron Sorkin, Guillermo del Toro, Louis C.K., Darren Aronofsky, and more. And we'll continue through next week, so keep checking back. Usually we save tech news until later, but Apple had tech news so big that we've moved it up into our headlines this week with the release of their new iPhone X, which is written with an X, and the new HDR-capable Apple TV. So in terms of relevance for filmmakers, it's mostly, it's not about the buying an Apple TV, since most of us probably are not going to buy Apple TVs, but it's more about the HDR adoption in the Apple TV. Since, while that little puck has never been a huge hit, it is in millions and millions of homes. I have one. I have yeah. one. Really? Yeah, it's great. I don't yeah. buy cable. I just use my streaming services on my Apple TV, and I'm good. Yeah, they're totally awesome. My in-laws have it, and it's, like, super fun. And the games are great with the little Siri remote. But beyond that, even if you're never going to buy one, Apple has an ability to create and destroy standards that should really be paid attention to. They were one of the first people to be behind the killing of Flash, and uh, formats they support tend to survive. Formats they oppose tend to go away. With the Apple TV, they are supporting both HDR10 and Dolby Vision for HDR release formats. HDR10 is the open source standard, which makes it a very logical choice for Apple, who likes open sources. But Dolby Vision is a proprietary Dolby standard. It's more ambitious technically, which also makes sense for Apple. Um, you're still going to need a Dolby Vision TV which is going to be significantly brighter than the HDR10 standard in order to see Dolby Vision, but it's nice that Apple is supporting both of these formats. And as if you have an upcoming movie that you're planning on releasing in HDR, you're going to have to master both to HDR10 and Dolby Vision if you want to support everything that's out there. The other thing that's slightly cool about all this for filmmakers is that the iPhone 10 has a OLED, sometimes said OLED screen, and this is great because OLED screens offer higher levels of color accuracy. Our favorite little monitor, the small HD 702 OLED, is obviously an OLED because they put OLED in the name. <laughs> and uh, the color accuracy is great and the contrast ratios are great. What this means is that Apple is going to be pushing hard for larger amounts of OLED manufacturing. And that's eventually going to mean prices are going to come down as volume goes up. So be on the lookout in six months to a year for a bunch of little monitors like iPhone X sized that are OLED capable. Um, I know that a lot of the Android phones are already doing it, but Apple coming in with an OLED is big news. Also, since we all know a lot of our clients end up watching the stuff we make on iPhones, it's going to be nice to have like a more color accurate with better black screen where people watch the stuff we make. In our ideal world, everything is shown in like a color calibrated theater only shown on film projection with, you know, coconut oil popcorn. But in reality, we make stuff and people <laughs> like watch it on their phone in the back of a cab. And uh, it's nice that the phone will be a better quality image than it was before if they shell out the thousand dollars for the iPhone 10. Uh, on top of all that comes the news that Facebook is going to be following Apple's lead and spending $1 billion next year on original TV content, which matches the figure Apple announced earlier this year. That's $2 billion coming from tech giants for original content in the next year. Now, most of that money is going to go to the established industry folk paying for movies and shows that are being made by people you've already heard of and have heard of for 20 years, but there's going to be room for indies in there. The first Facebook show was from uh, Humans of New York, which is a guy who built his following on Instagram. 
Uh, so it is exciting times. Although I personally, I think Apple has an existing sales channel. I'm used to watching content on Apple TV and iTunes. I think Facebook has a real uphill battle to try and get people to watch video on their platform. But again, maybe that's just because I'm old. Interestingly, though, you know, add those TIFF acquisitions from YouTube Red to this list, and man, those tech companies are really pushing hard on original content. Which makes the next story feel a little bit old-fashioned because it's about television Emmys, except these days, you know what? Television means streaming too, so it's a whole new world. And as we start to get in the thick of fall festival season, it also means that, believe it or not, we're also kicking off the early part of awards season. The main American Emmy Awards for television aired this coming Sunday, but the Creative Arts Emmys were awarded last Saturday and Sunday and are worth noting because they cover so many of the -the below-the-line categories that concern us as filmmakers, like production design, casting, cinematography, editing. This year, the Governor's Award was given to ITVS, which many of you will be familiar with as the U.S.'s leading documentary film funder, co-producer, and distributor for public media outlets such as PBS, And as the Emmy site put it, quote, the guiding force behind more than 1,400 documentaries for television. Sally Jo Pfeiffer, president and CEO of ITVS, shouted out filmmakers in her acceptance speech, saying that we give her team, quote, the guts to speak out when sometimes it's dangerous to be brave, end quote. I liked that. Saturday's show was focused on non-scripted shows, and Ava DuVernay's 13th pretty much cleaned up in the dot categories. On Sunday, the focus was scripted programming. There, HBO led the pack with 16 awards, including no less than five for Westworld, four for The Night Of, including Outstanding Cinematography for a limited series, and three each for Veep and Big Little Lies. Netflix followed with 11 Emmys, five of them for Our Favorite Stranger Things. We should also mention that the award for Outstanding Cinematography for a single-camera series went to Colin Watkinson, DP of Hulu's The Handmaid's Tale, and Outstanding Cinematography for a Multi-Camera Series went to Donald A. Morgan for The Ranch on Netflix, which I have to admit I've never seen or heard of. So now I'm intrigued to check it out. Well, isn't The Ranch all of the uh, those brothers who are Scientologists doing a show together that's in like, it's like a sitcom in Colorado or something? Danny Masterson, am yeah, I wrong? Ashton Kutcher and Danny Masterson are in it. That's all I know, because it's like that 70s show. But not. Also, we should point out that HBO's uh, biggest hit, Game of Thrones, wasn't in Emmy running this year, correct? Weird. So that's why when we list HBO had 16 Emmys, that's 16 Emmys without Game of Thrones. Right. Well, it's, it's like the timing was such that this season didn't fall into this year. So yeah. it wasn't even for consideration. It wasn't that all these other shows beat out Game of Thrones. But yeah, that's actually that's an impressive take for HBO without its kind of flagship program. And now here's John again with Star Wars news. Uh, I feel <laughs> pew, like pew. this has come up again and again and again over the past year, and it's it's crazy kind of what Lucasfilm is uh, turning into in terms of a sort of revolving door of independent film directors. Would you say they change directors at warp speed? Another quote-unquote indie director has been dropped from a Star Wars project as of last week. That's right. There were the uh, Garrett Edwards problems on Rogue One, then The Empire Struck Back with the dismissal of Philip Lord and Chris Miller from the Han Solo project, and now they fired Colin Trevorrow from Star Wars Episode Nine to round out the trilogy. Wait, can I just ask real quick, How does he have an indie background? Trevorrow? Yeah, like I yes. thought he was the Jurassic Park guy. But he was Safety Not Guaranteed yes. guy before he, that. He started with Safety Not Guaranteed, and then he made uh, Jurassic World 
purely based off his independent film success. And then he made another stinker of a movie this year. <laughs> okay. Um, independent film. So Disney released a statement that pretty much seems like it is now copy and pasted from a clipboard at this point, uh, expressing their regret at losing a wonderful collaborator who mutually decided to part ways after a difference of visions. Sources indicated to Variety that the split stemmed from differences on the script between Trevorrow and studio executives. The film was expected to hit theaters on May 24, 2019, with production set to start in early 2018. The studio announced in August of 2015 at its D23 Expo that it had selected Trevorrow to direct the finale of the trilogy. At that point, Trevorrow was coming off helming Jurassic World for Universal, which went on to earn an impressive $1.6 billion at the worldwide box office. So you can see where Disney was attracted. A lot of Star Wars fans won't be too saddened by this firing, I uh, like to think. Trevorrow's last film, The Book of Henry, debuted to almost universal condemnation, and many were worried the series' conclusion would not be in the right hands. Vulture critic Emily U. Scheida had this to say about The Book of Henry. Quote, unquote, it does not suffice to call the book of Henry bad. It's non-functional, so poorly conceived from the ground up as to slip out of the grasp of the usual standards one applies to narrative film. It might be admirable if it wasn't such torture to watch. Yeah, ouch. Honestly, it was kind of expected that this would happen. Speculations for Trevorrow's replacement have been circulating the rumor mill for months. And among those rumored names were exciting directors like Edgar Wright, Patty Jenkins, Ava DuVernay, and even Taika Waititi. God, any one of them would have been amazing. Yes, and while it would have been awesome to see a Star Wars film directed by anyone with those unique talents, it has become clear that directors with distinct visual styles such as those aren't really the priority for Kathleen Kennedy and crew at Disney. Instead, they decided to play it safe and put the trilogy's conclusion back in the hands of the man who successfully relaunched the series, J.J. Abrams. I think most fans feel sort of divided on this hiring. As IGN put it, on the one hand, Abrams is the go-to guy in town who doesn't just have a vision as writer-director, but can also make things happen as a producer. On the other, this is the kind of thing that will prevent Star Wars from ever being truly great again. Sure, The Force Awakens was fine, IGN continues, but all the things fans complain about when talking about that film, the copycatitis of it all, represent a trait that Abrams has exhibited in his movies before, and it's what will ultimately make Episode Nine a safe bet that will make loads of money for Kathleen Kennedy, but not necessarily take the series to new heights. What do you guys think about this? What I wonder is, like, could... Mr. Trevor Oak have kept the job by just not doing the book of Henry and being like, you know, I'm going to I'm just going to wait and I'm just going to like hang out and work on the script and like sip some Lipton tea and like high five Kermit and just not made a movie and kept this job. It's possible. And if so, why go make a movie that apparently the script kicked around for 20 years and everyone was like, oh, the script is terrible. Well, he wanted to get back to his indie roots after making such a big film uh, with Jurassic World. But. So originally, industry people were like, oh, the book of Henry will be his return to sort of indie, uh, great indie roots stuff. And now, funny enough, industry people have been like, oh, well, Star Wars will be his return to making quality pictures. And now it doesn't even seem like he has that chance anymore. I hope he can get a chance to do something else at some point. I'm sure he will. I mean, I feel like getting Jurassic World as your second movie is a pretty good break. 
Like, I feel like in the average of breaks, that's, that's, a, that's yeah. a good break. I think so. Well, I agree with your sort of assessment of, like, the torn fandom. I kind of feel like, in some ways, I'm not looking for something really fresh and new when it comes to the main series. So I would love to see some of these more indie directors or diverse directors do the like the Han Solo movie and the spin-off movies. And I don't mind having J.J. Abram, who's already shown he can do it, further the like, what would you call it? The the main series. I actually liked The Force Awakens a lot. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of people did, and that's why they made this choice. Uh, one thing's for sure, I mean, the movie's going to be exciting regardless because it's the conclusion of this main series. And uh, I think ultimately whatever chances were passed up for these other directors to come in and shake things up, uh, they're kind of made up by J.J. Abrams being a upgrade from Trevorrow. So, yeah, I think it's going to be a good movie no matter what, hopefully. Also, he's one of the executive producers on the project. He probably knows the script exceptionally well at this point. If they still want to shoot the beginning of the year, they probably didn't have a whole lot of other choices. Like, Patty Jenkins just took Wonder Woman 2. Like, other people might not have the flexibility. Yeah. So there might be a lot of practical reasons that make him a very smart move. Edgar Wright said he had a Star Wars idea in, like, I want to say in May or June. And and then, like, later in June, he uh, quickly rescinded his position on making a Star Wars movie. Well, I think he got really burned by the Ant-Man experience. Yeah. Uh, which obviously, different studio. Marvel is not Disney, but I but Disney owns Marvel. Yeah, pretty much. So uh, I could totally... They're like, becoming more and more of the same sort of uh, style of release plan, too. Not that I would accuse Edgar Wright of revenge, but like if Edgar Wright like went down the road with them and got to the point of like months of negotiations and made Disney really think he was going to do the movie, and then like a week before shooting the movie was like, you know what? No. I would respect <laughs> that. <laughs> Not that revenge is ever healthy. I would also respect if he just didn't do it you know, without yeah. playing games because he didn't want to deal with that kind of bullshit. Well, obviously, that's the mature, responsible way to act. Well, but- obviously, I'm the mature, responsible one here. <laughs> Cool. Well, let's close the book on Star Wars. That was probably way too much Star Wars talk. But There's no such thing as too much dun, Star Wars talk. Dun, it's done, 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 done now. <laughs> okay, now let's close the book on Star Wars and move on. So, uh, Charles, you want to give us the other gear news from this week besides Apple? So the other gear news this week aside from Apple, is currently dominated by IBC, the International Broadcast Convention held every September in Amsterdam. So, it's happening right now, and it's usually not a platform that's super huge for us filmmakers in the United States. They're really focused on distribution and display tech, but there's been a few big things happening this year in software and new cameras coming out that are all timed for IBC that actually make it kind of a happening IBC this year. Not nearly as big a deal as NAB, but Some fun stuff coming down the pike. The first one, Panasonic has announced the ship date on their EVA-1, and we saw the first short films from the EVA-1, and we got our first hands-on with the EVA-1. It's going to be shipping the end of October. We finally got to put our grubby little mitts on it last night at a launch event at the Angelica Theater, and uh, it's just a really stunningly well-thought-out camera with lots of little details like making sure the batteries are small enough that it fits entirely within the body so gimbal work is easier, or the freedom of having no integrated viewfinder so that if you need a lighter body to fly it, you can do that really easily. Uh, I also really like that lens data travels through the 
F mount from the Sigma Cine Zooms, so you can record lens data, which is really great for um, VFX workflows. There's just a lot of really nice stuff about this camera, and we're excited to be uh, covering it more once it starts shipping end of October and uh, throughout the fall. How much does that baby go for? Seventy three hundred. Seventy three hundred. Okay. It's less than I would have expected, actually. That's exactly what they are hoping folks will say. Like, it's definitely a, like, it is an aggressive price point where you're like, oh, really? All of that for seventy three? Is it? It'd be so great if it were three grand. But you know, <laughs> it would be great if Lamborghinis were five grand. So. <laughs> Up next, Resolve 14, which comes at an amazing price point, is now out of beta and into a stable release with a big push into sound and edit. For those that might have missed it, Blackmagic is now shipping the stable version of Resolve 14. This is a major upgrade over 12.5. They've got new collaboration tools, they've got new face tracking, and they've done a really big push into better playback for the edit room, more stable life in the edit room, and really making it a realistic editing tool. And the basic version... Is free. You only have to pay the two ninety nine, which so far has been a permanent license with no renewals. If you want to upgrade for noise correction and project sharing between teams, the beta was super widely downloaded, and by the end, beta nine and beta eight, it was super stable. So, with the stable release of fourteen, it's going to be a really popular app. If you're looking for an edit and color platform that's free, uh, Resolve, especially at free, is the first place to look. And then. Uh, Next up, speaking of sharing projects, Adobe has aimed an arrow right at Avid's heart today with all of their new announcements at IBC of new project collaboration tools. They're all going to be rolling out throughout the fall. As Resolve and Premiere push really hard into innovative user experiences and expanded tool sets, the last big reason people keep defending Media Composer has been it's got a really great utility for shared project workflows. If you have a lead editor and three assistants, or if you're on a reality show with two editors, and then a whole bunch of producers who all want to review dailies, Media Composer was really the tool to do it with. However... Resolve is aiming hard for this with their toolset in 14 Studio, and Adobe has finally gotten the memo and has a newfound ability to collaborate much better when working in shared storage environments with Premiere. Uh, As opposed to Media Composer, where it's built around bin sharing, Premiere is going to be focusing instead on full project sharing, but they have the ability to open multiple projects at the same time with fast switching, and you can have one project read-only, while another person has it open as like a master mode and you can, with dynamic switching, it's going to be a fast and efficient way to get teams working on the same project. Avid, watch out. Cool. Now moving right on ahead to Ask No Film School. This week, Andrew Neighbor asks, is it just me or has anyone else noticed this? TV correspondents braving 130 mile per hour winds standing and recording while holding a microphone and there's no rumble from wind noise? I'm assuming they have a law of close to their body, and the handheld piece is for show. Is there some other way of doing this? How are they doing this? Andrew, that is a great and exceptionally topical and tropical question. Uh, there you go. I was going to say it, but you, you got me. You beat me to the punch. Or should I say, <sighs> you beat me to the pun. Ooh, <laughs> the pun. That's a twofer. Very proud of my influence on this this place, I have to say. First off, and I can't believe it has to be said, but the dozen viral videos have been sent this last week make it obvious that I should say it. Don't go outside in a hurricane. Just like don't go outside in a hurricane. So all the advice I'm about to give is purely technical and observational. And 
please do not use this advice as an excuse to go outside and try and record the sound of a hurricane. Stay safe, get out of the path of destruction, and honestly, the news people shouldn't even be doing it either, but they're getting paid and have insurance. So, back to your question. It's almost definitely not a lavalier, for the simple reason that lavaliers tend to take a lot of effort to set up and maintain and control, and in a traditional stand-up, usually you don't have a mixer. So, a stand-up is generally just a camera operator and a reporter. Nobody else. Lavaliers are okay, but you never want to use a lavalier unmonitored because you're going to get wireless interference if it's wireless. You're going to get clothing noise on a normal shoe. If there's a lot of wind, you're going to get a tremendous amount of clothing noise. And you want to have someone real-time monitoring it and mixing it between sources to make it usable. And you don't have that kind of personnel bandwidth for a stand-up in the field. Lavs make a lot of sense on a film shoot where a dedicated mixer is listening and where the boom is available as backup and it's all being processed in posts. And you'll see them live on a set sometimes for like an anchor or all the time for the anchor where you have a live mixer on the set and they're not being blown with 135 mile hour winds. On those stand-ups, you are seeing where someone is standing in the field and you are not hearing that low rumble of wind. You're indeed hearing audio from the microphone in that reporter's hands. Uh, and there's a couple of reasons why the wind is not that crazy. First off, the windscreen, although those little windscreens you put on a thing is not a huge help, it's helping a little bit. Secondly, if you look at the specs on something like the Road Reporter, which is what we use for our NAB coverage here at No Film School, it's an omnidirectional microphone, which means it points all directions and it's going to hear the wind. But the frequency response is dialed in tighter to focus just on the human voice. So... There are tones that are lower than a human speaking voice, and we normally can hear them with our ears and with like a film set shotgun mic, but the road reporter doesn't record them because human voices don't tend to admit them, so the recorder tunes them out. So like the human ear and most microphones have the goal of 20 to 20, 20 hertz to 20,000 hertz frequency response. But the road reporter focuses on 70 to 15, 70 hertz, which is a full 50 hertz above the 20 hertz floor. And it's in that 20 to 70 hertz that those low rumbles you're not hearing exist. So those are tuned out because most people's voices don't go that low. Although you can totally Google YouTube videos of people whose voices do go lower than 70 hertz. Um, in fact, because of this, telephones focus on only 300 to 3400 hertz. Um, although, obviously, that's one of the reasons why you can always sort of tell if someone was recorded through a telephone. So, that's how those reporters are out there uh, without you hearing tremendous low rumbling wind noise because their microphone is targeted at the human voice frequencies and cut out those low rumbles. Good luck, stay safe, do not go outside in a hurricane. Thanks, Charles, and thanks for the question, Andrew. And now on to movies opening this week. On Amazon Prime Instant, you can stream An American Werewolf in London starting September 15th. I just saw this movie for the first time a few months ago, and it's quickly become one of my favorite horror movies. Most of that is due to John Landis, the genius writer-director behind such classic 80s comedies as Animal House, The Blues Brothers, Three Amigos, and Coming to America. And I had no idea he had written and directed this film before I saw it. Uh... I always knew it was just kind of like a cult horror movie. Landis has been very clear that out of all the movies he's ever made in his prolific career, Werewolf is number one. 
And it's no surprise, because the movie is funny, scary, and in a year that was inundated by an obscene amount of werewolf movies, wholly original. It also boasts some of the coolest practical effects of all time. Its monster transformation scene will go down in film history as one of the most innovative uses of costume, effects, and makeup ever. The story goes like this. Two American college students are on a walking tour of Britain and are attacked by a werewolf. One is killed, the other is mauled. The werewolf that attacks them is killed, but reverts to its human form, and the local townspeople are unwilling to acknowledge its existence. The surviving student begins to have nightmares of hunting on four feet at first, but then finds that his friend and other recent victims appear to him, demanding that he commit suicide to release them from their curse, being trapped between worlds because of their unnatural deaths. You know, I wouldn't have gone out of my way to see that movie, but you kind of, you just convinced me. It sounds really interesting. Yeah, you should definitely see it. So after its premiere at TIFF last week, Angelina Jolie's latest film, First They Killed My Father, is debuting on Netflix this Friday. In it, Cambodian author and human rights activist Long Ung recounts the horrors she suffered under the rule of the deadly Khmer Rouge. The film is a dramatization of these life events and not a documentary. One of our writers, Dylan Dempsey, wrote up a panel on which the screenwriter, author, and subject Long Ung shares her advice on writing intensely personal stories. She said, quote, If you want your work to connect with an audience, you have to open yourself to emotional tension. You have to plunge into the details of an experience no matter how painful. You have to push yourself to the edge, particularly if you're writing about something you've lived through yourself. It sounds chilling and is getting extremely good reviews so far, so check it out on Netflix Friday. Also coming to Netflix on September 20th is Carol, Todd Haynes' feature about an aspiring photographer who develops an intimate relationship with an older woman in 1950s New York. And it was one of the best movies of 2015. It boasts powerful performances from both Rooney Mara and Kate Blanchett, both of whom were nominated for Academy Awards. Our own Chris Boone wrote up a Blacklist podcast episode featuring even more screenwriting advice from the film screenwriter and Oscar-nominated Phyllis Nagy. Interestingly, the best film I've seen at TIFF so far was another lesbian drama starring Kate Mara, Rooney Mara's sister. It was called My Days of Mercy, and I will write about it on NoFilmSchool.com. And coming to HBO on September 16th is La La Land, last year's fake Best Picture winner, as our dearly departed Emily Booter so eloquently put it, won just about every other accolade it could during award season. Okay, just for the record, Emily Booter is not dead. (laughs) She's just dead to us. Yeah, exactly. If you haven't seen it yet, the film follows Emma Stone, who won the Female Best Actor Oscar for her performance, as an up-and-coming starlet who dates a jazz musician and sings her way through the struggles of becoming an actor in Los Angeles. At 32 years, 38 days of age, Damien Chazelle became the youngest winner of Best Director for his effort on the musical project. Perhaps the most stunning bit of work on the film, however, comes from cinematographer Linus Sandgren, who also won an award for his work. We have plenty of advice from Sandgren and more in our article, 11 Indispensable Pieces of Advice from 2016's Best Cinematographers, and you can read it on the site. And hitting theaters on Friday, September 15th, is Mother. Darren Aronofsky's latest also had its fair share of screenings at TIFF last week, and it's clear Aronofsky's taking us back to his Black Swan days with this one. The director has a special knack for films that creep under your skin and stick with you as nightmares for weeks to come. He knows how to take our darkest psychoses and translate them onto film. Not many details of the plot have been revealed for this one. It looks like all the basics are covered, though. You know, cults, angry mobs, stalkers, demons, pregnancy, that sort of stuff. That's all I'm going to say about it because I've been avoiding spoilers, but if you're interested in reading more about it, you can read Sophia Harvey's aptly named article, Everything We Know About Darren Aronofsky's Mother, right now. (laughs) 
<laughs> so. I've always wanted to know more about Darren Aronofsky's mother. And now we've got some grant deadlines this week. The Tribeca Film Institute If Then short documentary program, American Id- Midwest, which, as we've talked about on the show before, they really need to work on these, like, grant names. That is a marble mouthful. Anyway, it has a deadline on September 15th, tomorrow. If you're a short documentary filmmaker working or living in the Midwest, there's a brand new short film pitch contest from the Tribeca Film Institute you should apply to. The winners of the If Then pitch competitions, selected by a professional jury, will be eligible for up to $20,000 in production support from If Then, as well as ongoing mentorship year-round, and will participate in a year-long distribution initiative managed by the Tribeca Film Institute that offers creative control, revenue potential, and career development. The ITVS Diversity Development Fund has a deadline on September 15th as well. If you have a diverse background and could use $15,000 in research and development funding for your single nonfiction program for broadcast on public television, the Independent Television Service. They're looking for exceptional stories by filmmakers from diverse backgrounds, stories that take creative risks, inspire dialogue, and are rarely seen on public media. They're committed to supporting producers of color and creating public media programming that is truly inclusive. That's the same ITVS we mentioned at the top of the show that won the Governor's Award Emmy this year. And last year, the Panasaro Foundation started underwriting a feature film subsection of the previous cross-current doc fund. So now the Hot Docs Cross Currents Doc Fund theatrical stream has a deadline of September 22nd. With the fund in place, an emerging filmmaker, defined by the program as under 35 with less than three directing credits, can get a $30,000 Canadian dollar (laughs) amount toward their feature film. The grant is designed to support a new range of filmmakers with auteur-driven stories from underrepresented and marginalized communities from around the world, and the award can reflect up to 50% of the project's production budget. And now onto festival deadlines. The Leuven International Short Film Festival has a deadline on September 15th. This is the late deadline. The festival takes place December 2nd to the 9th, 2017, in the beautiful medieval city of Leuven, Belgium. It is an Academy Award and BAFTA qualifying festival, and the festival screens more than 200 short films from all over the world, divided into more than 25 different compilations. Awards include 10,000 euro kit packages and range from 1,000 to 2,000 euro cash prizes if you win. So some pretty good stuff there. The early bird deadline of the Dock Edge Festival is tomorrow, September 15th. This one takes place May 9th to June 4th in Auckland, New Zealand. How fun. It's an Academy Award qualifying festival for the short documentary subject category, and it includes awards, Q&A sessions with the filmmakers, Dock Talks, Dock for Schools, and special events. It's um, also hosts the Screen Edge Forum, which is an industry conference during the festival. Plus, as mentioned, New Zealand. And finally, the Dublin International Film Festival has a deadline on September 20th. This is the late deadline. The festival takes place February 22nd to March 4th, 2018 in Dublin, Ireland, and it's said to deliver the very best in Irish film and film talent to Irish and international audiences each year. Plus, Dublin. And now, John, I'd like to ask for your weekly words of wisdom. Well, they're not my weekly words of wisdom, but I did watch a TIFF live stream of a masterclass given by Okja slash the host director Bong Joon-ho earlier this week. And often during these Q&As, the moderator will ask about how a director or a screenwriter comes up with an idea. For Bong, as for many others, the seed of an idea always begins from a personal experience. 
Generally, this experience takes the form of a certain image or a certain person, which then triggers the larger thematic idea. And this is something that I've heard a lot of directors say, but I've never heard them really describe it as well as Bong Joon-ho, who said, The idea expands from that personal experience, as if a boulder rolling down a steep hill. Whether that be research or observation from books, I do believe that research and interviews are important, but it's important not to be bound by the research or too precious about it. So I thought that was a really great way to contextualize your reading and outside research as an important part of the screenwriting process as a whole, sort of having that safety net there for your own personal experience to build off of and then accumulate speed as it roll as it's rolling down. I thought that was really cool. I agree. It's a really poetic image, sort of like his films. So following on this idea of ideas and inspiration, we have an amazing talk up from Guillermo del Toro on his new film, The Shape of Water, which was my most anticipated of the festival. Del Toro, like Bong, often bases his films on personal feelings or experiences, but he admitted, quote, inspiration is a mystery for everyone, including the guy in front of the computer at 5 a.m. praying for a fucking idea. I got some comfort from the fact that even he has, quote, a couple of incomplete stories I simply can't finish. I spend about a year with the first 10 pages of Pan's Labyrinth before I could solve it. Finally, he added, quote, Stories don't come to you because you want them to. They happen. People ask, why don't you do one like this or that? But that's not how it works. They just happen. So similar, you know, we have to be sort of open to ideas in our lives and wait for that inspiration to come. By the way, in addition to all of our coverage, TIFF is posting a bunch of these talks on their YouTube page, so check it out if you are having Toronto FOMO. So, for a couple of shout-outs and things that you can be super excited about, uh, the Camden International Film Festival, that wonderful festival in northern Maine that we've mentioned on the show many times, kicks off tonight, and I am headed up to Camden to uh, do a bunch of podcast interviews and represent no film school in the doc community up there so i'm excited to bring you a full report next week and independent film week also starts this weekend john's going to be representing us there on sunday at some really cool talks and covering them next week and we also will have week-long coverage with uh, several of our local writers at indie film week so we are going to be able to bring you guys all sorts of stories uh and tips and advice from you know across the current span of indie filmmaking it should be a really Great week for content on nofilmschool.com. Yeah, and uh, our podcast on Monday is going to be a discussion that I have with um, a duo that went to Scotland to film an adapted version of Hamlet on location. And uh, what they did was they went there to do a play, and then they ended up filming the play in the style of a movie and then they also made a VR piece in companion to the movie so basically they were taking full advantage of being in Scotland and doing this thing while they could and made three different forms of art or three different artful mediums in one experience so I'm going to talk to them about adapting stage to screen and then screen to VR which is kind of a a nuts uh, turnaround. And last week I said that it was the last time I was going to talk about my Kickstarter campaign. But you lied. But I lied because I was wrong about the ending date. The ending date is actually uh, Saturday. So I have two days left. I guess, yeah, two days left. So if you've thought about 
you know, checking it out or pledging. Uh, we could really use your help. We're two-thirds of the way there. Uh, I think we're going to do it, but I, I, I need uh, still need people to be contributing. So, please. How can people find this wonderful Kickstarter campaign, John? Go to Kickstarter and type in The Guy. It's called The Guy. It's John, I'm John Fusco, and it's my movie, The Guy. <laughs> and uh, this is the last time I will ever be speaking about it on air. At, at least, least about the Kickstarter yeah, campaign. Because obviously we're going to tell campaign. all the wonderful tales of how well production goes. Yeah. In the meantime, guys, even spreading the word through your social media about John's campaign is a big help. So thanks for checking it out. And thanks for checking us out. You can read about everything we talked about on the show and lots more about the craft of filmmaking at nofilmschool.com. And please subscribe to the No Film School podcast so you don't miss great episodes like next Monday's. Um, rate us with those five stars on iTunes if you get a chance. It really helps and makes us feel good. And as always, please stay in touch. I'm at Liz Film on Twitter. I'm at Jim underscore John underscore Jim. Jim, John, Jim. And Charles is at Charles Hain. And we are all at No Film School. See you next week. Bye.